If you know that what you're doing and delivering is valuable, then you don't need to measure its impact. But you are having to make a leap of faith that the thing you're doing is good for the world. Hey, this is Mike Stopforth, and you are listening to season two of the One-Eyed Man podcast. If you didn't know it already, uh, you sure know it now. Uh, We live in a very complex, very uncertain and very unpredictable world. And this podcast is all about speaking to people who have maybe not figured it all out, but at least figured some small part of it out. And uh, I'm fascinated by listening to their stories and learning from their experience. And I hope you are too. And to that end... This season is all about discovering more about social entrepreneurship, people who are trying to create organizations that both have commercial value and also some sort of societal impact and really about unpacking the terms and um, some of the cases and some of the experiences around that. So I hope you'll enjoy that. My guest, the first episode of the show is a gentleman by the name of Arthur Atwell. He's the co-founder of a business called Electric Bookworks and also a non-profit called Book Dash, which I will link to and which we'll talk about in the show. But Arthur is, is an incredibly remarkable innovator. He is the kind of person who, you know, we all look at systems around us, things in the world and go, you know, I wish I could change that, but there's no way that my small effort will make a difference. Well, Arthur is the opposite of that. He looks at a, a massive system, an established industry with centuries of legacy and says, I can fix that. <laughs> I can change that thing. And you know, Arthur has a revolutionary approach to and vision for uh, the world of traditional publishing and firmly believes that we need to get more information to more people who need it uh, quicker and more efficiently than ever before. And in doing so, we can radically change the world around us and the way that people think uh, certainly about the world around us. It was an absolute pleasure chatting to Arthur. I know you'll enjoy it. And uh, yeah, I'll link to a whole bunch of the things that he mentions in the show notes. So please check that out too. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy the show and I look forward to your feedback on the rest of season two. Enjoy the chat. So Arthur, you started your journey in publishing and uh, the initial part of your professional career was with multinational publishers. And then you made this quite substantial transition around about 15 years ago into a, a very new and, and very progressive space. You know, what, what prompted that shift and can you try and summarize 15 years of journey uh, in, into a quick introduction? Yeah, thanks. It's sometimes nice to have a chance to, to think about that stuff. I think that in a sense, book publishing, even though I was working for these big corporate publishers, book publishing is very social, socially focused, particularly educational book publishing that I was in. Yeah. And I had come from a family that was all uh, teachers and ministers. And so in a sense, my my upbringing and my own way of thinking about the world uh, had already set me up to find ways to solve social problems. Mm. And that's in no way self-praise. That's you know, just the, the accident of history. And so getting into educational book publishing when I was young, which was really from my mother, who was a, an amazing publisher herself, uh, was was natural for me. But what I did find when working for the the really big multinationals, which 
do amazingly wonderful things, but also have to act like big companies, is they need to make decisions that are particularly in the service of making money at the at the end of the day. And so you've got this mm. this terrible tension that this sets so many people in educational publishing, really wonderful people doing good things for the world, who have to serve this unnamed master of money and make these terrible trade-offs every day. And I remember one particular meeting I had with our directors in about 2005 now, where I was pushing for a particular cover image on a book and the director looked at me and she said, Arthur, you're just outweighed on this. We're just going to make this other decision. And the decision they wanted to make, I saw as kind of a purely capitalist market grabbing approach to a book that I thought was had important social impact. And I remember so clearly at that moment knowing that my time in big companies was over, not because I had any hard feelings towards these people, but because I couldn't do what I wanted to do in the world with these constraints. Uh, and so um, I, yeah, resigned the next day. And a few weeks later, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. At first, I thought I'd find a job in another small publishing company, uh, but soon found that there aren't many small publishing companies that had jobs open for people with my particular skill set and ended up just having to make a plan. And one thing kind of led to another, and that's a few months later, I was starting a new company with some friends hmm. called Electric Bookworks. That's now be the foundation of everything for, for many years. And essentially what happened over those years was that we were trying to bring technology to publishing in ways that would make publishing more abundant and accessible, books yeah. more abundant and accessible. And no one really thought they had the problem we were trying to solve. And so we didn't have customers. And so we just had okay. to experiment. And we spent 10 years experimenting. And, and those experiments have been some successes and, and a great many interesting data points that we could call values. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very diplomatic way of putting it. But tell me about what Electric Bookworks has evolved into today. What is its current form? And where is your focus? And why have you settled on that focus? Because, I mean, it really is a very exciting space today, the, the world of, of publishing and the, and the crossovers between, I guess, our tra traditional understandings of, of uh, printed works and, and the online or digital experience of uh, transferring and absorbing information. Where have you landed and what is the motivation for that? Well, what we do now is we publish books for big organizations that need to act like publishers. Usually those mm -hmm. are nonprofits or parastatals. And the nature of those books is that they can be printed books and they can mm -hmm. be open access websites or they okay. can be apps in an app store or eBooks. And the point is that it's always the same book, right? But in order to reach the greatest number of people with your book, you need to use digital, whether that's an app or a website or an eBook. In order to have credibility, you need to be in print. It's a strange human fact that if you had a guest on your podcast who claimed to be an expert in something because they had written a book about it, if you discovered that that book was only available as an ebook and wasn't a printed book, it takes something away, you know? Somehow out yeah. there, your words on paper makes you an expert. So credibility is critical. And so we found ourselves with this particular special skill is that, that we produce books in all these formats. And really, it's all about part of a really much bigger journey of making books, as I said, abundant and accessible. 
I'm also particularly really interested in a, what I call new publishing, which is just that publishing companies as they exist today will be around for a long time doing wonderful work. Mm. But they're increasingly going to exist side by side with a increasingly important sector of organizations that are publishing world-class, top-quality, wonderful books that are free for people to read, usually free online, and are open access and are gifts to the world. And so I'm really fascinated with that gift to the world model. I think it can exist alongside ways to make money. And a lot of our work now is about figuring out with our clients, how do we make books that are open gifts to the world, but also pay for themselves in the long term one way or another? That's really interesting. So, I mean, you've mentioned two tensions already in our conversation. The first tension, I guess, in your early journey in publishing seemed to be between the idea of reach or impact or the sharing of information and sort of uh, financial gain uh, or sort of market-focused decision-making. And then the second tension you're talking about is this kind of perceived, and we see this a lot in in the digital space, this this polarized thinking between online or offline, you know, kind of traditional or digital. And you're saying it's it's less about that, more about acknowledging the importance of the work and the knowledge, and then finding as many ways for people to connect with that, for it to have the most significant uh, impact on the world possible. We're using the word impact a lot, and the word impact appears certainly on the Electric Books, uh, Electric Bookworks website a lot. How do you think about that word in terms of how it's it's kind of evolved in prominence and and taken on a slightly new form in, in the last, let's say, five years or so? How do you think about impact specifically in terms of what EBW does on a on a daily basis? Good question. I think every person has to make quite a personal decision about the impact you want to make in the world. And for one project, it might be just simply number of people reached. You look at your Google Analytics and you're right, that's our number. And if that number is high, we're making an impact. Uh, And then Mm. you get completely other ways of measuring impact, which is, did we deeply change a small number of people's lives? Uh, Or Mm. did we shape the way people think about a particular concept? You know, I've been very lucky that uh, some years ago, I, was funded by the Shuttleworth Foundation as a Shuttleworth Fellow. And one of the mm. things that has blown me away working with the Shuttleworth Foundation over many years now is how much they focus on the fact that a social entrepreneur or an agent of change of any kind, they can make their impact in so many different ways. But the most important way, at least to them, and I've kind of adopted this for myself, is can they change the conversation? Can they change what people think of mm. as the default or the mainstream? And for me, yes. that's the big thing. If we can shift the way people think, then it doesn't matter how high my Google Analytics uh, numbers are. If I've shifted the way people think, then then that's the most important kind of impact for me personally. Different for everybody. Yes. yes. I mean, one of the struggles that I've had with the word impact is not dissimilar to one of the the wrestling match I have with the word purpose, right? Because mm. All organizations uh, have purpose and all organizations have impact. Those purposes and impacts are not always explicit <laughs> uh, and they are certainly not always good. Uh, obviously, that's a very simple word to describe a very complex thing. But I guess what has happened is the social uh, altruistic 
civil society charity section of the world has adopted impact as a as a word to i guess summarize what it means to shift the social compass if you like uh, but one of the challenges around impact is it sounds great <laughs> and it and it looks really good on a document or on a, on a on a website but is is around kind of measuring effectively measuring impact uh, because it's one thing declaring oneself an impactful organization or or putting the label of of impact on a project and and obviously that opens doors that other uh, you know kind of more or perceived to be more capitalist oriented initiatives don't have access to but how do you think about measuring impact and is that is that something that's a, like a big part of your consideration set or do you think it's still very much an evolving space you know that's a, a big debate in in a number of organizations I'm, I'm part of at electric bookworks uh you know it's a business i'm the sole owner which means i get to make sort of benevolent benevolent dictator decisions and I like to keep impact as simple as possible because measuring it takes so much time away from getting the work done. And so I am a big fan of yes. picking a really simple number. Yeah. Uh, so for instance, with one of our, our biggest projects, we do the, the book production and management for a nonprofit in the UK called Core that produces open access economics textbooks. And what, what excites me about their work is that they're completely reinventing the way we think about economics focusing on the issues of inequality um, as well as on environmental and climate change concerns and it's just a exciting way to teach economics now for me the measure that i want to i want to hold us to as electric bookworks is can we make this book so good that more and more universities use it and so far over mm. 300 universities around the world are prescribing this book and if they're prescribing it that's because we're in large part making it easy to use obviously yes. working on the shoulders of the giants who actually wrote the text in the book, and that's the organization we work for. In another organization that I co-founded some years ago called Book Dash, it's a children's book nonprofit. We produce books that are free for anyone to download and reuse, and we print and give away copies. There, we've obviously had a lot of debate about whether we want to measure, for instance, just the number of books we get out, we, we ship, how many books leave the doors, uh, versus how many children at the end of the day can you know have better educational outcomes because they've had free books when they were tiny i don't think we can begin to measure the actual impact on children because if we try to do that we won't have any time left for making books and shipping them and so for sure. me personally sure. at book dash our job is get the highest number of books out the door and let someone else measure it and so often we pragmatists like myself have to trade off our what we want to measure which is usually a very simple impact measure, with what our funders want us to measure. And often the funders, they are justifying their own funding to someone else. And so they yes, need to measure yes. something else. And I think that measuring impact only starts getting complicated when more than one person in an organization with different motives uh, needs to report to someone else. They need some kind of number on a piece of paper to show someone. That's when things really get a little gnarly. But for me, simpler the better. It's one of the things that the non-profit and the for-profit worlds share <laughs> with, <laughs> with equal levels of, I think, frustration uh, is the levels of bureaucracy and often complexity around around the measurement of performance and how easy it is to get things. I mean, I fully understand uh, the necessity for both 
but how difficult it can be to get the work done when measurement is becomes in and of itself a, a primary goal and not necessarily an indicator for success. Mm. Often the difficulty is trusting that what you're doing is actually valuable. If you know that what you're doing and delivering is valuable in and of itself, then you don't necessarily need to measure its impact. But you are having to make a leap of faith that the thing mm. you're doing is good for the world. Uh, but that's at least in the non on the nonprofit side where social impact is, is what you're after. Yeah. On the for-profit side, money does sometimes make things a lot easier to measure. <laughs> it is true. It's true. At least it is one one central indicator that everybody's focused on. In my journey uh, studying last year, I realized that there's an, an enormous wealth of information, and it's almost embarrassing for me to admit this, but an enormous wealth of information hidden in journals that are both incredibly important and useful for business people to access, but that we don't typically consider primary sources of information because we're not in the academy or we're not engaged uh, in that world on a daily basis. The academy can often be quite a closed and clicked world. Um, when you talk about your, kind of this balance between high quality thinking, publishing, editing, and information, and then obviously open access, uh, are you trying to unweave or unravel some of the some of the separateness of the the typical academic journal world and all of the wonderful knowledge that's kind of hidden and embedded in there? And and how far have you got on that, that <laughs> honourable quest? You know, what what are some of the struggles or some of the barriers to to you achieving that? Yeah, you know, that's it's one of the great tragedies of our time. We will look back in fifty or hundred years' time when we finally solve this problem and think, oh, what the hell was humankind doing wrapping up all their best thinking in these impenetrable, expensive uh, journal mm. articles that are gatekept by big corporate interests? I mean, the likes of Elsevier <laughs> and Springer, they're, they're the most remarkable corporate behemoths that hold public knowledge for ransom. And I wouldn't say that if most public knowledge wasn't created by public funds. So you've got government money sure. coming from taxes, paying for research that gets written up in journals that then gets held to ransom by big corporate companies. So absolutely, it's a critical part of what we do in making books cheap and abundant and information cheap and abundant for people uh, is, is providing some kind of antidote or alternative to that industry. And something that a, a previous startup that didn't make it that I ran for some years called Paperwrite taught me was that you can't help a broken industry fix itself. You have to build mm. another industry alongside it and eventually just get bigger. You've got to plant a new tree. You can't fix a sick tree. You plant a new tree and you wait for the sick tree to finish up while you grow your own tree. And that's really informs a lot of what I do at Electric Bookworks. It's the heart of what we did at BookDash and another nonprofit that I've co-founded called BetterCare that does healthcare publishing. Really, the aim of all of those is how do we plant a new tree uh, and stop wasting our time trying to fix the old one? Do you see yourself then very much as a, as a disruptor to some of those traditional gatekeepers and bastions of, of kind of, you know, the keepers of knowledge, if you like. I think the disruptor is one of those words uh, that it makes me nervous because it's uh, <laughs> it's one of those destructive words. It's supposed to be cool. Sure. And I don't know. I, I 
I avoid the word when I can. And I think precisely because I'm planting a new tree, I'm not trying to chop down the old tree. That's what it, mm, I think a disruptor does, right? That's uh, I want to plant yeah. a new tree. But that wasn't always the case. I had to learn that a very hard way uh, with PaperWrite, the, the startup that I ran from 2010 to 2015. There we were trying to fix a sick tree. We were trying to help the publishing world work alongside photocopy shops rather than in opposition, opposition or competition with them. Mm. And that didn't work because we couldn't persuade the publishers who most needed that to join us. Uh, it's an interesting story. And in the end, it, it taught me that um, disruption as a strategy has a low statistical chance of success. If what you mean by disruption is chopping down the old tree uh, or, or trying to fix it. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of season one? It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or the One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. So why do you feel what sounds like a, a phenomenal idea uh, around bridging two you know, kind of traditionally mm. very separate or very kind of conversely or contradictorily motivated parties. What didn't work? What were some of the lessons that you garnered out of that, that process? So in a nutshell, what, what we set out to do at PaperWrite was make it possible for any photocopy shop, of which there are thousands and thousands in South Africa alone, let alone the rest of the world, any yeah. photocopy shop to legally print out books for their customers. Right now, mm. photocopy shops, as we all know, photocopy books illegally, especially uh, uh, university textbooks for undergrads. Yes. And it seemed to me that copy shops could be amazing allies if sure. we could create a system that made that was good for them and good for publishers. And so we set up, it was kind of an online library with a wallet system, with a watermarking system. The numbers worked out beautifully to pay the publisher very well uh, in fact, they could make as much from every sale as they could from a traditional sure, copy in a bookstore sure. because we were cutting out so many middle people in the, Intermediaries, in the distribution chain. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that's what we said about doing. And I think in the end, there were probably many reasons why we couldn't make it work financially. But there were two key ones that really stood out to me. Um, the one was simply strategy. I a strategy that with hindsight wasn't best. I went wide instead of deep. I, instead of working with 600 copy shops uh, over two years, I should have worked with 10 copy shops uh, near one university campus and really knocked the, the service levels out the park. But instead, mm. we were trying to service 600 stores around the country uh, with small teams spread too thin. So that was just strategy. So that was on me. The other part was that we couldn't get past the emotional and corporate resistance to that publishers, particularly educational publishers, felt to working with people who are really their enemy. I mean, mm -hmm. the visceral distaste that publishers have for copy shops is palpable. If you get a sit in a room full of publishers and you start talking about copy shops, uh, voices get animated, um, stories get angry. And this is because they... It's so hard to make money in publishing, so hard. 
And when you see anyone making it even harder for you, it makes you angry. At the same time, we have to get past that as publishers. We have to realize that those copy shops are solving a problem we're not solving. And if we're not solving it, then that's on us. And we could, across the table from any one person, we could get on the same page about the need to change the way we were selling books with copy shops. But as soon as that person then had to champion the idea through their company, get other people on board and get it past legal departments uh, and and past the emotional resistance to working with your former enemy, uh, it just didn't go anywhere. We did get a lot of publishers signed up. We had about 100 publishers on our books, uh, publishing books ranging from novels to high school uh, study guides, uh, reference books, business books. But the one kind of book we most needed to make the whole system work and the one kind of book the world most needed was undergraduate textbooks. And we Hmm. couldn't get any significant undergrad textbook publisher to sign on despite years of conversations and to and fro. Um, And in the end, I had to pull the plug. I'd uh, spent enough money. Learned a lot, wrote everything up. The whole story is still on the paper art website. Yeah, I saw the uh, links on the on the site. That that's that's really good of you to share that. And I mean and that I suppose that is very central to your your own personal journey and your own personal uh purpose. Um I wanna ask you a little bit like if we if we can transition into a more philosophical conversation. I get the sense that you believe that publishing, certainly as it is in its current form, is a bit of a race to the bottom. That there is a decreasing likelihood of the traditional publishing model's ability to render sustainable value. Like, is that driven by consumer behavior? Is is that a, a function of competitive activity? What's changing that's making it so incredibly difficult for publishers to continue to survive? And how do you hope they will begin to shift their focus in order to fix the problem, I guess. Mm. Well, first of all, publishing is a forest, right? I mean, I was talking about the sick trees, so I'll extend that metaphor. It's a forest, and a lot of those trees are sick, and a lot of those trees are young and wonderful and old and wonderful, so it's a mixed bag. Yeah. But on the whole, the feeling is, kind of anecdotal feeling is, that, yes, publishing has this problem of adjusting to a new reality. And I suppose the new reality is just that what the Internet has done and I think digital products did this, but the internet really highlights it, is it's untangled or disentangled format from content. And all of a sudden, where for hundreds of years, the paper that a book was printed on was as important to the distribution of knowledge as the words on those pages, suddenly Mm. that's not true anymore. And so you had entire business models that were founded on selling paper made cool by the content that was on it. And all of a sudden, content is just ubiquitous. It is so much harder to make content so good that people will pay for it when there's so much content that's just fine out there. And most people are happy with just fine, just okay. So how do you get people to pay when they suddenly see the difference between the paper and the words? And books are an incredibly complex thing to create. You know, if you've got a a book of 100,000 words, that's a hundred thousand things that can go wrong that you've got to get exactly right <laughs> to make that book really good. That is a hell of a complex machine. You know, we're busy working on a, a whole infographic about the new publishing process and just putting all the steps in that 
infographic has been a journey because you realize just how many people and skills go into this thing. So what you've got is these companies who have been producing this incredibly complex product for, for 500 years, doing it essentially the same way. And all of a sudden, they have to sell the content without the paper. It's just a very big ask. It's a huge, huge ask in an industry that is already extremely low margin. My sense mm. is that it's a low margin industry because those products are so complicated. And yet you read them for you know five hours and you're done and you discard it. And that's, that's it's just a tough business. So you've got all these companies that have got a particular set of skills that now need a completely new set of skills. And they've got no money to buy those skills in. And they're competing with tech companies that are just soaking up the technical skills so fast. I mean, they, the skills gap between publishing companies and, and big tech, well-funded VC-backed tech startups is astonishing. So I think that's the thing. It's just a, it's a skills issue. And publishers are really struggling to get those skills in-house, retain them, and then build products on them while still maintaining their existing business. It's a really, really tough ask, which is why I'll plant a new tree, man, and yeah. wish the existing publishers the best. The one counter argument potentially or counter thought is that, yes, of course, the web has, and certainly not just in publishing, but in many realms, decoupled the content from the, the medium or from the channel. But there's also a sense that having access to everything and I mean, I don't, I, I don't have, I don't have peer reviewed proof of this necessarily, but there is a sense that the quality of our thinking might be following the same trajectory <laughs> and that our ability to analyze information, our appetite for analyzing information, the mental shortcuts, the heuristics that we take because we, we snack so much on content as opposed to engage with it. If that is true, then surely within there, that, that reality, there is an opportunity for continued great work and the role publishers can play. I mean, I feel the same way about news, really, is that they, you know, when everything is mediocre, surely that's an opportunity for extraordinary. But I think as you rightly put it, you, you need a willing customer. And that's, that's really the, that's the clincher. I don't know how you think about mm. our, I don't know how you think about our thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a tough one, you know. I mean, I've never been good at creating products that consumers love. You know, I, I'm a I'm a, a technician of of how to make books, but how to sell them, how to pick which ones to buy, that's really tough because picking a willing consumer is hard. But just on the quality thing alone, the way I sometimes think about it is that. The fact is publishers sell more books today than they did last year and they did the year before and they did the year before. So the actual number of people buying books or the number of books people are buying is actually still growing. So mm -hmm. we say publishing is in trouble, but what do we really mean? Well, I think what we mean yeah. is we're not seeing the big publishers doing really innovative, exciting things. We're seeing other people doing exciting stuff who aren't the publishers. Why aren't the publishers the ones doing the exciting stuff? And I think that's, you know, that's about the skills and the new tree. But yeah, I think that it's quite possible that it's just as hard as it ever was to produce a book, a great work that people will pay for. Because, you know, when you look at the great literature that's coming out now, it seems pretty damn great. You know, it's probably just as great as the stuff that was coming out 10, 20, 30 years ago. But it's, it's, it's floating on a huge pile of mediocre 
literature and absolute rubbish. Uh, and all we can see is the pile. But at the top mm, of that pile yeah. are the same number of great works. That's, to me, what I choose to believe, right? Again, there is, there's no data on this. So, um, yeah. well, maybe, maybe Amazon has this data, but they're sure as hell not sharing it. Clearly not. Yeah. So what are the, <laughs> the projects that right now you are watching that are on your radar in, in the world of publishing journalism? And, and I guess, the, generally speaking, how we consume information or how we consume knowledge, rather. Let me be deliberate about my phrasing that are really exciting to you and that mm-hmm. you think are possibly signals of a, a new direction or a, a new approach? What would you encourage us to look out for? I think that things that enable people to still engage deeply over a long period are, are exciting in my corner of the world because the kind of content I deal with is complex, long-form content that are big packages of, kind of curated content. So things to look for. I think that uh, really high-quality podcast series and generally audiobooks, I think that South Africa particularly hasn't begun to scratch the surface of what's possible mm. with audio, the South African publishing industry. And when I say publishing industry here, I, I mean more than just traditional book publishers. Anyone who's producing yes. great long-form content. It's early, early days. And, I mean, it's even early days in the developed world, but uh, there's not nearly enough happening here. Given the nature of our population, uh, the nature of literacy and language and and, uh, and the cost of books in South Africa, audio just seems like a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited about that, and particularly projects or ventures that try to combine reading and listening. Uh, and uh, and those, those are some, there's some interesting stuff happening right there. And I think that probably started with Amazon hooking up Audible with with ebooks, right? They kind of set a yeah. standard for the possibility that you could sync an audiobook and your reading experience. I think that's really exciting. Yeah. Then I think just on, on a kind of technical point of view, I think that the that will over time change the way books are created. There are some really exciting tools being developed that are back-end tools that are interesting to no one except geeks like myself in the back rooms of book publishing who can see that this stuff is going to change the way that companies work. You know, for 30, 40 years, the book publishing industry's production system has been dominated by one particular software solution, you know, Adobe InDesign, and before that it was Quark. And we're finally seeing that kind of monopoly break down. And what that means is we start to get diversity in the way books can be created. It changes the kinds of people who can make them and the kinds of uh, the nature of the physical and storied nature of those books that changes. You know, we see, for instance, in on the web, an enormous proliferation of tools for making websites. And that in itself lends this incredible diversity of storytelling experiences. And now we're starting to see that same diversity arrive in book publishing. And that means we're going to get very different kinds of books. And then there are a couple of projects that are just like left field. You know, for many years, I've followed Cognition. Uh, I don't Mm. know if you know Patrick uh, Patrick and Barry Caton, who started Cognition many years ago. They have battled their way through the tough years of entrepreneurship. I'm sure it's still still tough, but they've now started to get the kind of uh, traction that that I think they deserve. And I think the way that they are turning long-form content into essentially conversations between users and computers uh, is a really interesting way to tell stories. And then a kind of counterintuitive thing is just that I think they're really interesting, uh, a lot of it really interesting storytelling that is the perhaps the hardest to do is 
is the same old craft we've always done, but make it really good. Just looping back to what you were saying about quality. You know, I love projects that say, you know what, we're going to stick with making beautiful, amazing books, whether that's mm. McSweeney's producing these beautiful printed editions or, you know, or core economics that I mentioned earlier, we're producing this totally new way of teaching economics to do the old stuff, but just do it so much better because we've just, we just know more as humans. Now that's, that's exciting stuff as well. Yeah. Do less better rather than more badly. I think that um, sums up what I've rambled on about very succinctly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, your, your experience and insights are, are, are just so so deeply intriguing for anybody, I think, who is interested in information and knowledge and how we access and share those things. And I think what we're learning at the moment uh, is just how poorly we do that, considering the tools and the need that is present, the tools that are available and the need that is present. And I think one of the things I hope sincerely and deeply is that this uh, strange moment in time that we're all going through together will have us thinking quite differently about about how we share knowledge and the responsibility mm. we all have for sharing knowledge in a in a re, sort of in a more responsible and more impactful to get back to that wonderful word mm. we started with uh, way to may, just maybe some final thoughts on on mm. how you think this this moment in time might change the way we think about the dissemination of of information i think that you know right now if we can allow ourselves to put aside the human tragedy of it because that's important to recognize that that's there of course yeah. it is an extraordinary opportunity right now for anyone working in digital because all of a sudden people who've never had any good reason to consume digital information or to make a video call or to sit with their child on a computer and figure out how to read a book together they're suddenly doing that because they have to all of a yeah. sudden all of our hopes and dreams as technology entrepreneurs, not all of them have, have kind of hopes and dreams is, is the wrong word. Our our wish that all of a sudden we could have a bigger market has just landed mm. suddenly. And it's a time of reckoning mm. for ed tech companies. I mean, right now they're actually getting massive use on their products. They're really going to be tested mm. uh, for publishers mm. and so on. So, I mean, we've seen it. <laughs> no more excuses. Yeah. Exactly. No more excuses. You know, at BookDash, our children's book nonprofit, our web traffic over the last two months has gone through the roof as people That's look for, for books to read for their children. Um, the same things happened with our healthcare products. And, uh, and that's super exciting. So, yeah, I think that um, the first thing is we're, we're on the line now as technologists. Like this is, this is the moment where we get tested about whether we've been working on something worthwhile. You know, one of the difficult things for, with, with tech entrepreneurs is that, in fact, with any entrepreneur really, um, is that, we land where we are doing what we do largely by accident. Now, I'm a, I'm a publisher by accident, right? I didn't sit down and look at all the possible careers and, and some I strategically choose publishing because I thought it would make the most difference in the world. I'm just here. And the way that I make books is, is to some extent an accident of a whole lot of tiny little things that happened to me. But now that I'm in this position, I'm somehow expected to evangelize about it as this is the best way to make books. This is how everyone should be doing it. The phrase I keep in my head is that we all defend the castle that keeps us. You know, whichever, whichever yeah, castle yeah. we get to shelter in is the one we think is is the best, and we will defend it against all else. And it's kind of ridiculous, right? Like, so now's the moment 
when we all get to really see and challenge ourselves to say, am I working on something that I genuinely think is the best use of my time? Or have I just landed here by accident? If we don't really believe in what we're doing right now, then A, we're wasting the opportunity and we might be wasting a lot of other people's time as well. So it's a, it's a good time to make sure you, you believe in what you're doing. Sure. It's a beautiful thought uh, to end with. How do people connect with you online, Arthur? Assuming you want people to connect with you online. <laughs> yeah. On Twitter, I'm Arthur Atwell. I also tweet as Electric Book, which is our Electric Bookworks Twitter account. Uh, we're on LinkedIn as well. Those are my, my favorite places. And uh, otherwise, ArthurAtwell.com for myself and ElectricBookworks.com for the company. Also, I want to say check out uh, BookDash.org and, and BetterCare.org. Sierra some really lovely open access children's and healthcare books there. So I should uh, definitely give them a bump. Yeah, I mean, I imagine we could we could probably spend another show just talking about those two uh, realms, and, and maybe we'll have the opportunity to do that soon. But yeah, we'll definitely give both of those projects, well, all three projects, a, a plug in the show notes. And um, yeah, I really can't wait to chat again soon about uh, ways to collaborate in future. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com Click on the podcast link and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is a king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.